The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Would you pray again with me this morning? And Father, as we gather, it is our desire that our hearts would be in pursuit of you, following after you, in line with your own heart. You have revealed your perfect will to us in your word, and so as we open it, as we spend this time and study of it this morning, I pray that our hearts would be soft, malleable, able to be shaped and formed according to the truth of your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would send your spirit, and even through the weakness and the foolishness of preaching, that you would show yourself strong, that you would do a work in this time and in this place that no man could take credit for, bring glory to yourself as you build up your church in this place. We give you our attention, Lord, we give you our hearts, work according to your will, We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take a seat if you would. And turn to Mark chapter 11. So think with me, if you would, about trying to build a home without a blueprint. I've been thinking about this this last week. I know that there are some interactions going on between families in the church and and builders right now. And imagine if the desires for a home were only conveyed verbally. This is what we want. We want windows. We want walls. We want floors. Three bedrooms, two bathrooms, And if this builder then took that mental picture, conveyed it to the framers, even capable, competent carpenters going to to different places on this foundation and beginning to build a structure, what would happen when that structure was supposed to be all tied together? Well, this carpenter wanted to build eight-foot walls, while the one on the other corner of the house thought nine-foot walls would be more suitable. Well, we wanted to put the windows up high in the wall for more privacy, while this carpenter wanted to set those windows lower. It wouldn't work. It would be the first postmodern house. It, It just wouldn't fit together. There would be no sense. It would be chaos. Or maybe you're laying flooring. I know the Stazak boys, they've laid flooring at our house and they're, they're capable, they're competent, 
but you give them the tools and you give them the materials and you say, you start in that corner and you start over in that corner and just lay it however you will. <laughs> the look on Eric's face is communicating a great deal for those of you that can't see it from there. It wouldn't work. There has to be some sort of standard. There has to be some sort of rule. There has to be direction. There has to be a plan. Well, as we come to Mark chapter 11 this week, what we are seeing is that those who thought they were in charge are questioning Jesus about his plan, about the standard that he has given for worship. Last week, he came to this house of worship, the temple. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And what did Jesus say about it? Instead, it's a den of robbers. Instead of true religion, he found robbery. Instead of genuine worship, he found deception. And what that comes down to is Jesus comes in and sets things straight is authority. The chief priests, the scribes, the rulers, they recognize this authority. What plans are being followed? What rules have been established? What outline has been given? And understand, church, that rightful authority doesn't hamper or hinder or restrain our worship, but instead what it should do, right authority should enable true worship. It should enhance true worship. Because the one giving those rules is the one that is being worshipped and communicating this is the way in which worship should be done. Well, it was different than the way it was being done in the temple. And so those in charge of worship in the temple wanted to know who's making the rules. And so we come to verse 27, and we see here Jesus on on the day following going into the temple, driving out the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons, not allowing anyone to carry anything through the temple. On the next day, verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem. And as Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? This is a representative group of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. That would make up the the Sanhedrin. This was the religious council. They're the ones that set the order of worship in the temple. They are the ones that, that made the rules, as it were. 
They had a lot of influence, a lot of political, a lot of social sway, a lot of religious influence. They were the recognized authority when it came to matters of worship. You have a question about worship? The highest level, the highest court that you could bring that to would be the Sanhedrin. And they were the ones that were in charge of how worship was being done in the temple. Now, we're not told by Mark if this was an official delegation that the Sanhedrin got these men together and sent them out to question Jesus. We don't know. But even if it's an unofficial delegation, they still carried their position, their rank, a great deal of influence. And they want to know by what authority are you doing these things? That was the question. By what authority are you doing these things? When Jesus came in the day earlier to the temple, he had effectively established himself as a force to be reckoned with. He cleansed the temple. He said, what is going on here is not true worship, not genuine worship, not according to the Father's will, not according to the way that God wants to be worshiped. It's a den of robbers instead of a house of prayer for all nations. He was upsetting things. He was turning things over. He was raising the bar, setting a standard, and the people wanted to know by what authority. Now, authority, I want you to understand, that means not only having the permission to do something, but also the power to do something. So when we think of authority, it's not just giving someone permission, but they also have the ability to perform that. So power and permission. Maybe in your home, you've raised a a puppy, right? We have cute little puppies. They're just little fur balls, and we play with them, and they bite on our hand, and it's cute, and we give them permission. We permit them to do that. And then they grow, and they get bigger, and their bites get harder. And then finally, you realize we can no longer permit cute little puppy to bite on our hands because now there's power behind that bite. So we're no longer giving authority. We're no longer giving permission because there's great power there now as well. It's this combination. Well, Jesus came into the temple and he made clear that the worship was unacceptable worship. There's no question about that. And so he exercised his authority to put a stop to the wayward worship. Exercised his authority, power, and permission to put a stop to the wayward worship. 
They worshiped their wallets, making the temple a den of robbers instead of a house of prayer. They worshiped convenience and control instead of worshiping the Lord of glory. To many people, they thought that's what worship was. That's what they had known. This is what worship looks like in the temple. This is what we're accustomed to. So we're going to go along with the flow. We're just going to behave in the, the standard that's been set. As low as that standard was, as wrong as that standard was, but this is what we're going to do. Even though it was dressed in robes of worship, even though it was referred to as worship at the temple, it was not acceptable worship. God determines what is acceptable worship. Just being here on a Sunday morning, going through the routine, doesn't mean it's acceptable worship. It's more than just outward, but it's also inward. Where is your heart? Are you engaged? Whether you're, you're singing loudest for everyone to hear, or maybe... Your lips aren't moving at all. But it's not those outward forms that matter. Everything that is dressed in robes of worship is not acceptable worship. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they they recognized something about Jesus as he came into the temple. They weren't asking him if he had authority. Do you see their question? By what authority are you doing these these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? There was no debating. There was no denying that Jesus had the power. He came in. He drove people out. He overturned tables He chased them away, not allowing them to use the temple as a shortcut from place A to place B, carrying things through it because it was a a shorter path. No, this is a place of worship. And he exercised great power as he did that. Their question was, what type of authority? Where did this originate from? Where did this authority come from? Who gave you this authority? I want you also to understand their asking wasn't out of a sincere desire to know so they could submit to it. But their asking was so that they could work to destroy him. We see this even earlier in the same chapter Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes, they heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They had this sinister desire. We want to destroy Jesus. He is upsetting our norms, upsetting our systems, telling us our worship is wrong. And rather than be changed, we need to remove him. But they recognized his authority. 
You can keep a a finger in Mark chapter 11, but turn back to Mark chapter 1. All through Jesus' ministry, his authority has been recognized. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. They recognized his authority. He has authority over unclean spirits. He rebukes them, and they obey He teaches as one with authority, not just as the scribes are teaching. Then just following in Mark chapter 2, Jesus sees the faith of these men that bring their friend on a bed and lower him down through the roof. And he says to this paralytic on the bed, son, your sins are forgiven. If that's not a claim to authority, I don't know what would be. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. There is no question that Jesus had great authority. He had power to drive out unclean spirits. He had power to heal people that were paralyzed. He had power to drive out money changers, robbers on the Temple Mount. He had authority. Where did he get this permission from? How can you forgive sins? That only comes from God. 
the scribes, the Pharisees, excuse me, the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, as they're asking Jesus this question, they're really not asking because they want to know. No, they want to find a way to destroy him. Undeniable evidence that Jesus had a great deal of authority. And all of the prophecies, Jesus coming in, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the teaching, the healing, all of these things. Have you ever done one of those connect the dots where it's a bunch of dots on a page and you start drawing a line from one to two to three and a picture starts to take shape? And they were seeing it. This is starting to disrupt what we think the Messiah should be like. But this is sure looking a whole lot like that. They didn't like the form that it was beginning to take. It pointed to him being the Messiah, but he's too disruptive. He's too contrary to their system of worship. And even though they know the answer to their question, by what authority, they refuse to submit to the authority of truth. They knew the truth, but they were hoping Jesus would answer in such a way that then they could set out on their plan to destroy him. Now let's continue. Verse 29 Posing this question to Jesus, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, we might think that this is some evasive maneuver. Jesus just trying to dodge a question. But I want you to understand that it isn't. In fact, if the chief priests and the scribes and the elders answered this question honestly, they would have the answer to their own question about where Jesus's authority came from. So here's the question that Jesus poses to them. Verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another. They huddle up. We need to spend some time talking about this. We need to figure this out. How are we to answer about the baptism of John? From heaven, that is, from God, or from man? And so that is what they do. They huddle around and begin discussing it. Now, do you remember the baptism of John? That Jesus came to be baptized by John in the Jordan River? And do you remember the events that took place after Jesus came up out of the water? Mark chapter 1. There was a voice from heaven, wasn't there? This is my Son, with you I am well pleased. My beloved son, there's no denying the baptism of John came from heaven, came from God. 
God himself spoke over Jesus immediately following that baptism. So the answer was pretty straightforward. For the chief priests, for the scribes, for the elders, it came from heaven. And because they huddle around and they begin talking, scheming, arguing with one another, don't let that fool you into believing this is a difficult question to answer because it's not. It's simple. It's straightforward. It doesn't show that it's a hard question. What this shows is that their vision was clouded. Their hearts were hard. That's what this really reveals. Not the difficulty of the question, but the hardness of their hearts. Even the way that that Mark uses this word discussing, discussion, in his gospel, it doesn't typically indicate a faithful seeking of truth. Let's discuss this. Let's try to arrive at truth. Instead, for this group especially, it's a way of negotiating around a direct question so that they can avoid being skewered by the truth. They don't want to end up on the end of that skewer. Let's figure out a way that we can get around it. It was in Mark chapter 8. The disciples were discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? That was the disciples. What are we going to do? We didn't bring bread. Yeah, Jesus just fed maybe 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish, but we didn't bring bread. He's going to be upset with us. And so they're talking and they're trying to come up with, what are we going to tell him? They're scheming. Mark chapter 9, Jesus is in a house and he asks the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? What do you think the disciples were discussing on the way? Well, the thing they often found themselves discussing, and they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Those are the kinds of discussions that Mark sees taking place as he records these events in his gospel. And so here, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they're given this question, and what do they do? They go to discussing huddle around in hushed tones. Let's scheme, let's plan. How can we answer in such a way that we're not stuck by the truth, that we can keep our position and not lose our rank? Even though we know that he is really powerful, even though we know that he does have authority, even though we know that John's baptism was from God, but we can't say that. We can't say that. That would mean we'd have to change. That would mean that we're wrong. And we can't let off that we're wrong. So how are we going to answer this? What are we going to say? What are we, we going to do? 
Verse 31, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? That's option one. We could say it's from heaven. But even though some of the scribes and the Pharisees went out to be baptized by John in the Jordan, no, we can't say that it was from heaven because we as a group have not believed him. That is John the Baptist. Option two is we could say that it was from man. But shall we say from man? Well, that poses a different set of problems. If we say that John's baptism was from man, verse 32 tells us they were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. They knew the truth, but they refused to submit to the authority of the truth. Wanting to protect their position, now, if we say that John's baptism was only from man, that would cause too much disruption. We would very likely lose our position. And so what do they do? They submit here to the fear of man. They were afraid of the people. And so they answered Jesus, verse 33, we do not know. We don't know. They suppress the truth. They tell a lie. They knew. But out of fear of man, they feel they can't speak the truth. The fear of man is powerful if we let it be. Have you thought about maybe how fear of man is, is influencing you? There was something for me this week that has really been annoying me, bugging me. Joel and I went on a camping trip Monday. And as we're going up the side of a, a snowy mountain in February, I'm in a t-shirt. There's not a cloud in the sky. Just imagine the most beautiful, sunny, there's fresh snow on the ground, and we're passing people on the trail. And one guy comments about me being in a t-shirt and how remarkable that is for a February day. And do you know what my response was? Praise God, hallelujah, praise the Lord, no. Do you know what I said? Two words, oh man. And that's been bugging me so much this week. What a stupid answer. Oh man? Now, in my heart and in my mind, I'm thinking, praise God for such a beautiful day. But in that moment, what comes out of my mouth? Oh, man? And do you know why? 
because there are these well-worn ruts of the fear of man. And at that moment, it's not that I was making this conscious effort to hold back truth, to give praise to God. No. This beautiful day was a result of a gracious God, but these long-formed habits made this knee-jerk reaction. Oh, man. Yeah, it's a great day. I want to form new habits. God-glorifying habits where my words express my grateful heart for God's goodness. That I recognize that there is a creator who has made the mountains and caused the snow to fall and given us the ability to go out and explore and enjoy all of that to give glory to him, not not to creation, not that we worship and serve the creation or the creature, but that we worship and serve the creator. And you know what? Oh, man, really doesn't communicate that. (laughs) It doesn't. I want to give praise to God. But this long-formed habit of the fear of man has caused me to express different things other than praise to God. And I think that one of the clearest indicators of of whether or not we operate from a fear of man is in how we answer questions or how we respond to things spoken to us. When someone asks you a question, maybe it's on one of your sports teams, And they ask you a question about what you believe or where you stand on a certain topic or about what do you do over the weekend, about what your family is like. Do we give an answer that we think they want? I'm going to answer it this way because I think this is what they're looking for. And I can skewer, or I can, I can avoid the skewer of truth. Dance around that. Do we answer in such a way that we just want to satisfy them? Think if I can say this, they'll be satisfied, and we can move on. Or do we answer with the truth? Even when that truth is pointed, even when that truth might make us unpopular, even when that truth might make us stand out or have attention drawn to us. And mind you, we don't draw attention to ourselves so that people would have their attention drawn to us, but there are times when we draw attention to ourselves because we're living for God so that we might be a reflection of God to those that we're standing out from. Do we speak truth? Do we stand in truth? Do we answer with the truth? How did such a glorious 
Monday come about? Sunshine, mountains, fresh snow? Because God made it. Praise be to God. But the greatest antidote, you see, to the sickness of the fear of man is what? It's to trust in the Lord. This is what Proverbs 29 says in verse 25. The fear of man lays a snare. That is, it sets a trap. The fear of man sets a trap. And if you walk in the fear of man, you're going to find yourself caught in that trap, ensnared by it. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Trusting in the Lord. That's how we overcome the fear of man. God, this is what you've said. This is your word. This is what you've entrusted to us. This is what we know is right and good and true. And so we are going to hold to this. We're going to walk in this. We're going to live this out. And this is trusting the Lord, not my own schemes or devices or trying to tell people what I think they want to hear. Trusting in the Lord. And if you do that, you avoid those traps, those snares. You don't get caught up in those things. You don't get all entangled in these webs. Walking in the trust of the Lord. This is something that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders did not have. A trust of the Lord. They're scheming. They're discussing. How do we answer? What do we say? And finally, they come to the conclusion that they just can't answer. Either way, we're going to be stuck. Verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. Insincere. They did know. But they weren't willing to be broken by the truth. They weren't willing to conform to the truth. And so they thought they could just push it off. They could avoid it a little longer. This is not a good open-mindedness. Something that our society might put in front of us is just be open-minded. We don't know. G.K. Chesterton said that merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. You open your mouth so you can put food in, so you can shut it on something solid. You can be nourished by that. You can be satisfied by that. And so it should be with our minds as well. We open our minds to take in truth so we can shut them on something solid that's going to help us, that's going to direct us, that's going to nourish us and satisfy us, direct us in our lives. 
But these who are supposed to be the religious authorities, they just say, we do not know. And so Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If they had answered truly, if they had answered sincerely, John's baptism is from heaven. Those words spoken when Jesus was baptized by John, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That would have answered their question about by what authority, Jesus, do you do these things? It was a clear answer, but they avoid it. And the only hope of the religious leaders to have Jesus say it clearly at this point in time, to walk into their trap, they were hoping that they would be able to proceed with their plans to destroy him if he would answer this question that they have posed to him. By what authority? They only wanted to destroy him. This wasn't the time that the father had appointed, though that day is approaching quickly as we work through Mark's gospel. The day when they would turn him over to the Romans, hand him over to Pontius Pilate, go through those proceedings, ultimately leading to his crucifixion, to his death. But rather than submit to Jesus, they choose instead to try to protect their position in society. Try to keep some type of reputation. Choosing instead to be their own authority instead of come under God's authority. And in trying to do so, to keep a place of prominence on earth, what they do is they give up a greater position in the heavenly places. In trying to be safe, in their thinking, what was safe? They missed salvation. They didn't recognize the authority of Jesus. Oh, they saw it. They knew it, but they didn't recognize it. That is, they didn't submit to it. And in denying his authority, they condemned the Lord of glory. Church, this morning as we have taken this time and examined God's word, we're all left here with a decision as well. Will you resist God's authority? Or will you recognize his authority? Will you come under his authority? Will you worship him by living a life for him in obedience to his will revealed in his word? Stop making yourself your own authority. But come under that one true, good, and loving authority that belongs to God. We are to walk in the truth, not as the chief priests and the scribes and the elders walked, 
contrary to the truth, avoiding the truth. No, we are, church, to walk in the truth that God has given us. His word is truth. And as we do so, to rightly worship Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks because you have not left us up to our own devices. You have given us your word. You have given us your spirit so that we can understand your word. You have given us new hearts and placed your spirit within us so that we can know and comprehend your truth and so that we have hearts that desire to walk in that truth. Father, though we've been justified, though in your sight we are righteous in the righteousness of Christ, yet in this life we know we are going from one degree of glory to another. We are going through this process of sanctification, becoming more holy as our God is holy. And it's my prayer for us, Father, that you would continue to sanctify us in your truth, that you would continue to to strengthen and fortify us in our faith, that we would not trust in ourselves, but that we would trust in you, that we would not walk in the fear of man, which only sets traps for us, but that we would trust you with all of our heart, leaning not on our own understanding. Father, help us even this day and this week to walk more clearly in truth. That means living in obedience to it and in the things that we do, those things that we we put our hands to, the places that we allow our feet to go, those things that we set our minds upon and ponder and meditate or think about, the places we allow our minds to wander, that it would be sanctified by truth and walking in truth and submitted to truth. And the words that we speak, Lord God, may they be words of truth and of power, not empty words, not words that would distract, not words that would tear down and destroy, but words that would bring glory to you and build others up in you. Father, sanctify us in your truth. We pray for this grace, for this kindness to be shown to us that we might bring even more glory to you. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.